The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Aaron Davis. We'll be talking about his recent book, Reckless Opportunists, Elites at the End of the Establishment. You can listen to the podcast via SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle as always is at Poll Theory Other. If you've been enjoying PTO and finding it useful, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you really like the show, please think about supporting it via Patreon. You can become a supporter from as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll gain access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Erin Davis is Professor of Political Communication and Co-Director of the Political Economy Research Centre at Goldsmiths. He's the author of six books, including Reckless Opportunists, which was the topic of our discussion, and Political Communication, a new introduction for Crisis Times, which is forthcoming from Polity Press. Erin has spent more than 20 years interviewing more than 350 elite figures across politics, business, finance, the civil service and the media. Unfortunately, I managed to record today's interview using my laptop mic rather than my external microphone, so the audio at my end is a bit worse than usual, but hopefully it's still listenable. So you you say in the introduction to the book that um, it might be time to question whether the British establishment still functions. Yes, some members of the elite have become very rich. They are united in their fear and loathing of left-wing ideas and ordinary publics. Their decisions have powerful consequences that are widely felt, but they are also rather less able to exert control or predict what those consequences will be. As a body, they have reached a tipping point. They are no longer coherent or collective or competent. These failings are not only causing larger schisms, inequalities and precariousness in Britain, they also threaten the very foundations of establishment rule itself. Um, could you explain why, why you think it is that British elites have become a threat to themselves, uh, what it is about contemporary politics that, that points to that being true, and what this means for the institutions to which they belong? Um, well, I think that there are several sides to this question. One side is the fact that the things that they cohered around before are less there. Um, and what I mean by that is if you look at older studies of elites of different kinds, a very high proportion went to a private school, not just a private school, a Clarendon private school. A very high proportion went to Oxbridge. A very high proportion were members of of one of a select group of clubs. And if you look at more recent figures and studies, that that has really dropped down a lot. So um, if you just take the super rich, uh, the Sunday Times rich list, the last couple of years, um, only 12% of them went to Oxbridge. Um, a very small percentage did that. It's kind of higher as you go along. Recent studies of CEOs found it was roughly about 20% 
went to private school and 20% went to Oxbridge. So those numbers are very different. In areas like the judiciary, it's still quite high or, or parts of the army or little pockets in the city. But in other areas, it's, it's much diminished. So that, that sort of thing that held them together has gone down. The other side of the, the, the issue is, is um, as I put it, neoliberalism has, and everything around that conflict competition has generated a set of people more working for themselves at the top. Um, less time, less able, less contacts to work together in the way that they used to. Yes, there are, are, are quite powerful networks and pockets of old establishment and pockets of new establishment. But um, everything that that makes it makes life tough for the average person in terms of constantly being monitored, precarious, moving on, evaluated, that affects the higher groups too now. And that makes them more self-interested, uh, self-concerned, uh, afraid, as well as uh, greedy and power mad in some cases. And that makes them often look out for number one, often at the expense of the institution itself or the organization itself that they're working for. So you get very, uh, at the high end, uh, at one end, you get the very obvious figures like Boris Johnson, or certain CEOs like Phil Green, Philip Green, um, who clearly they're getting what they can when they can for particular self-interest while causing larger problems around them. And those problems might come back and hit them. On, on the cover of the book, you have that famous image of Boris Johnson uh, stuck on a zip wire holding two union flags in his hands. And, and he does seem the really paradigmatic example of, of what you're talking about, of, of, of these uh, dangerous opportunists. Uh, another example that you discuss in the book is um, is David Cameron, and you mention his very glib comments regarding his desire to become uh, prime minister because he thought he would be good at it, uh, rather than for any deeper political convictions. Um, but I, I, I did wonder if, if there's a danger of kind of, of overstating that. I mean, um, regarding Cameron and, and Osborne, Although they can be seen in that way, I suppose another way to see them would be as to be actually highly ideological people who had a very specific idea of the policies they wanted to implement following the financial crisis. And that perhaps um, the examples of opportunism, whether it's um, portraying themselves as environmentalists of some kind um, or, as, or as kinder conservatives or the hugger hoodie rhetoric and so on, whether another way to see that is as, is, is as clever tactical manoeuvring that was necessary in order to ensure that the policies that they and, and, and the Conservative Party and, and business elites really do care about, um, uh, specifically the shoring up of, uh, of, of capital. Well, yes and no. Yeah, I mean, I, I picked on extreme examples like Boris Johnson, but um, I tend to think it's, it's a larger systemic thing. And of course, not all politicians are just out for themselves. Um, um, in terms of the Cameron and Osborne examples, well, Osborne in particular, uh, I mean, I had a fascinating interview with him. And what comes out is he didn't have strong ideological groundings. He wandered around with his mother as a teenager, as she did I think worked for Amnesty. Um, but anyway, sort of more liberal NGOs. He wasn't a member of the Young Conservatives. Um, he didn't have any strong economic grounding. It was quite clear he sort of fell into these things. He didn't even want to be a politician to start off with. He wanted to be a journalist. Uh, so he was very happy to end up in the Standard. But he sort of found himself there and then went to a sort of default position. And um, I mean, I see Cameron as sort of going to a default position too. And both of them just look to, to traditional, traditional to them, Thatcherite type policies, shrinking the state, 
yes, they wanted to shrink the state under cover of austerity. But I think they were following blueprints and plans rather than having any kind of new ideas of their own. They were professional politicians looking around for for something to to do. They had to deal with austerity. Um, That matched. So I see it a bit more like that rather than having having strong, clear ideological positions that they then wanted to follow. Yes, they, they were very good at spin. They're very good at presenting themselves and hugging the hoodies and those sorts of things. And that did help them get in. And a lot of that was sort of fake in terms of getting in. But I don't think they had a real overarching plan when they did get in. And so uh, would you say that, um, I mean, do you think that Osborne went into politics for reasons of sort of self-aggrandizement? I mean, what if, if, if he wasn't an ideologue, what was he his He fell into it. Uh, amazingly, when you talk to, I, I frequently ask CEOs and civil servants and politicians, what drew them to their career? How did they get there? What, why? The amazing answer is very often they fell into it. That was what was on offer. They looked for a job straight after university. Osborne wanted to be a journalist. He he tried some things unsuccessfully. Uh, A friend of his linked him up to the Conservative Research Department. And um, so he ended up working there, where he later met met Cameron, got connected, worked his way through, and then then decided he was going to be a politician, having been already well networked into the the Westminster web of, of politicians and journalists from his position. And as he said, he was just got there at a young age and worked his way up. He was a professional politician in many ways um, and successful at, at playing the game of politics. But if he'd been given a job on a, on a newspaper, which is what he wanted straight after university, he might never have even gone into politics. Pretty strange to think of being Chancellor of the Exchequer as just a staging post on the route to, uh, to success in journalism, as it's turned out to be for, for him. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think there is a group of people whether they're politicians or business people who, who, or civil servants who, who do now rotate and they think, I'm not just going to have one career. I'll do my, my time in a city institution. I'll do my time in politics. I'll, I'll do this. I'll do that. That's part of their rounded career that they want to do. They, these are sort of notches on the bedpost in some way. They're rotating. They're, they're building a career that way. It's not that they have a real strong vision or, or desire to change something or invent something. I mean, it's very interesting, though, isn't it? Because I think one of the things I was struck by reading the book was how, in a peculiar way, the, the people that you talk to, you know, these um, leaders in, in various uh, fields, actually resemble the broader population in, in, in the way they experience life. So despite being, you know, fantastically well remunerated, um, their own working conditions are often precarious. They don't feel that they're in control. And the difference between work and free time is, is ever more blurred. Which helps them think they, that's how everyone else should be too. It doesn't bother them because that's their lives. So everyone else can be precarious. Everyone else can work harder too. Um, and I, I suppose for them as well, the the degree of flexibility obviously doesn't carry the same threat that it does for people lower down the income spectrum, right? And so, you know, when they when they say that zero hours contracts are great, from their perspective, it probably does seem great, right? Because you know they can actually live in fairly precarious conditions because they are buffered by their by their wealth to some extent. Yes, I mean it's a strange kind of elite precarity, and it really is there. And you you realise that many you talk to. They may be at the top, but they consider themselves continually judged, measured, evaluated, and not that far from getting the sack uh, a lot of the time. If you look at how long the average CEO 
is in position or the average civil servant is in position, it's often just two or three years. And some of that, they're moving on for career reasons because they're very ambitious. Um, but quite often they're getting sacked, pushed out, maybe publicly or not so publicly. Um, they're aware, if you're a CEO, and it's even worse if you're in the city, that you're only as good as your next quarter. Uh, and if the results aren't coming through, and if you get a really bad result, you have to be prepared to justify that. And if you get two or three bad quarters, you know you're not going to be around much longer. You're going to be ejected as, as that's the norm. And um, I think I said in the book somewhere that, that many CEOs are now on one-year rolling contracts. That's what they expect. They expect it to be renewed year after year. So if, if you've messed up, if you put too much money into a long-term investment, which is not showing returns, you might try to persuade them that there's going to be great returns in three years' time, but that's no good because you're, you might be out in, in one or two years' time. And that's the sort of thing that makes them very short-termist. And whether you're a politician or a civil servant or a CEO, uh, you have these very short-term horizons. You know it's in the best interest somewhere of the company or the department or the party to make long-term decisions. But it's just not very tenable, or you think it's not very tenable. And so, as you say, the, the, the constant recycling of people through these different positions, um, I mean, you argue it kind of militates against any sort of expertise because people simply aren't in the job long enough to acquire a proper understanding of it. Is, is there a possibility that that excludes the degree to which skills between these positions are somewhat transferable? I mean, I'm thinking about how this plays out lower down the, the hierarchy in terms of, you know, there's so much emphasis these days upon uh, people skills and so on. And that's, you know, a, a core skill which is clearly transferable to other sectors. And is, is there a danger that, that your analysis is kind of might somewhat occlude the extent to which the role of the CEO in the modern era is different from what it was, you know, uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago? Yeah, it's true. I mean, I'll try and explain that point, which is, is they learn what's necessary to get to the top. And some of those skills uh, and abilities which get them to the top are also useful when they are at the top, but they may not be very useful to do things. If you're very good at finance now, you're more likely to become a top CEO. In fact, when I looked at it, half of, of FTSE 100 CEOs had an accounting degree or came through fi the financial part of the company to get to the top. That's what was their background. Years ago, a much, much larger proportion came from engineering uh, or science or design. And that means when you get to the top, you're, you're great at managing the figures. You're great in the short term, you're great at making the company look good to shareholders and investors and anyone from the outside, because that's what they look at, the figures. But that doesn't mean to say you've got any particular design, expertise, scientific interest, knowledge, uh, innovation in you. You're then dependent on, on other people for that. Again, I would argue it's the same for politicians. Politicians are now far more likely to do PPE far more likely to have a very short-term job in media, policy research, think tanks, somewhere around Westminster. Uh, if you go back a few years, not that long ago, they had degrees in, in, in business and history and law. They, were, they practiced law for years. They knew the law. They knew business or they knew campaigning and trade unions. Um, a large majority of them used to start off 
as local councillors. That's you did your time. You did your time on the back benches for many years before you even considered for a, um, a cabinet or shadow cabinet post. Um, all that's gone out the window now. It's it's what helps you get to the top, which is very often media skills. It's networking. It's a peripheral knowledge of multiple policy areas without any depth knowledge of any of them. And yes, you, leadership, I guess, is much more about being a generalist. It's about it's, it is about selling. It is about being good on the media. It is about networking. It's all those things. But those things aren't necessarily good for being creative, innovative, inspiring, having a vision, coming up with things, kind of things you hope a leader will 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 do will have a, a, a new vision rather than I'm going to manage this, I'm going to make things look good rather than actually invest, create. I want the semblance of jobs, not necessarily actual real jobs. I want the semblance of, of economic growth, not actual, I don't, it doesn't matter if there is actual growth on the ground or the economy is faltering in large parts of the country. If the figures look good at the end, that, that's what counts. I, I, I can be seen to be doing my job. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose um, and, until recently that seemed a very seemed a pretty successful strategy. But I suppose uh, the Brexit vote would seem to uh, run counter that to that now. Yeah, I think that's one of the many reactions: uh, the distrust in, in politicians, the distrust in experts, media, because because they were all telling a story that isn't what people felt a lot of the time in terms of their job experience, uh, whether they're part of the precarious gig economy, um, whether they're working two full-time jobs and still not being able to afford a home, various other things, whether they they can see the local town and community disintegrating year after year. Um, but none of that is really seen or mentioned by the experts, the Westminster politicians, the Westminster media. And, and our national media is, is very much based in London. It doesn't get out. So, so People inside think it all looks quite good. They, they, there's an echo chamber. It's a, the Westminster bubble, as people call it. One of the things I um, masochistically do in my spare time is I listen to the Spectator Daily podcast. They usually have uh, Fraser Nelson on, on there. And uh, one of the things he's keen to, to say about the British economy is that it's a, um, I think I'm quoting him uh, directly, a, a fantastic job-creating machine. Um, and you just, you do just, you know, find yourself thinking, have you any idea what these jobs are like, Fraser? Sure, unemployment is low, but um, the, the degree of precarity and underemployment and the conditions that people have to work under is often extraordinarily uh, bad. Regarding that question of, of, of risk that you mentioned, so, I mean, from reading the book, there's a very strong disconnect between the way business people seem to portray themselves in public and what they will actually say in, in, in private. So I, I think listeners might be surprised to learn just the extent to which these people are highly risk averse because of the importance of the bottom line and the danger of, as you say, investing in unsuccessful innovations. These are actually very, um, these are people who are very wary of technological innovation. And by and large, they're inclined to follow the lead of other innovators rather than 
to pursue technological innovation themselves. Um, was this something that you were particularly surprised by? And also, do you think that this is especially true of the British variant of neoliberalism, or do you think it has wider significance? Uh, I mean, I'm thinking in particular of uh, Mariana Mazzucato's work in which she tries to demonstrate that across the major economies that the private sector tends to latch onto innovations that emerge from publicly funded research, again, completely contrary to the uh, the self-betrayal of, of business. Um, yes, I agree with that. Not entirely, but especially with current modern investments in, in, in high-tech things, which take a huge amount of, of capital. And the, the bigger the capital, the bigger the risk. But I also think any new innovative area now, uh, A, it takes a lot of capital. B, the technological world is so changeable and fast-moving. And people are aware that, I mean, I talk to CEOs who, who invest in a plant based on some new thing. And you could put tens of millions into this plant. And by the time you finished, your partner firm had decided that actually that technology was already redundant. And they were going to put it into put their cooperation and investment into another kind of, of field. And suddenly you had a redundant plant and wasted tens of millions of pounds which is very hard to explain to your shareholders. But the other side is is no sooner had you, you invented something, uh, even if it did work, even if it was current with the new technology, it was compatible with everything. In many cases, the, the time you had to exploit that exclusive has gone down too. So people can copy it much faster, and they do. When Apple came along with the, the, the smartphone, it, it did have a few years because that was quite a technological leap. Um, but every recent innovation, Apple or, or Samsung or whoever does, is very quickly copied into the, the rivals stuff too. And if you, if you can imagine CEOs wandering around the world trying to, to do stuff, it's no wonder many of them say, well, actually, I'd rather see if it's working and then I'll copy it because then I, I won't risk the house on it. I can get around all those problems because they've, they've been stuck many times over it. And do you think that they're aware of the, the hypocrisy? Because, you know, whenever um, executive pay is questioned, the, the justification is often around risk, right? You know, we're the people who are taking the tough decisions. We're, we're risking um, the shirt on our back and all this kind of thing. But as you, you know, as you describe in private, they're, they're saying quite the, quite the contrary. Yeah, I mean, leaders are all salespeople. They have to sell themselves and they have to make out that they're doing a good job or they are being innovative because um, they have to persuade their peers that, that they should be employed and employed on these high salaries. But again, they're, they're, they're working with hypocrisy too because they know that they, they have to manage the assets of the investor. They have to manage what the stakeholder expectations, which makes them more conservative. In terms of this being a, a particularly British thing, I, I do think and have thought for years that places like the UK and US and one or two other places, where the financial sense is particularly high, I think it's worse. This has been remarked on in lots of studies of, of business, where there are high, high financial centres putting a lot of pressure on companies for returns, then there's less investment, far less research and, and development investment. Those sorts of things happen at a much lower level because of uh, the fear of, of losing out in investment and what that does to the short-term bottom line. 
so it, so it is worse in, in places like Britain. And I suppose even in, in some respects, even worse than the United States, right? Because we don't have Silicon Valley. We don't have the quite the same enormous military sector within which a lot of innovation happens. Yes. And, and um, I mean, there's a lot, I think, I mean, CEOs have said to me, there's a lot more free floating large amounts of capital, which can be quickly put into something and taken out of something in the States uh, in the way it can't happen here or, or less likely to happen here. But I also found, I mean, I was surprised when I inter- I compared FTSE 100 CEOs with, with private company CEOs and the private company CEOs who did not have to regularly explain themselves to investors were far more likely to invest in longer term projects and, 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 and more likely to be innovative, actually, because they weren't constrained in that same way. They, they knew that they had a longer tenure and most of them did stay in the company on average, far longer, several more years than your average FTSE 100 CEO. So that, again, indicates that the financial sector is is sucking the lifeblood out of investment in the country, in, in industry. And you'll get some CEOs saying that. Um, if you talk to a private CEO, they'll, most of them will say that uh, on or off the record. A lot of public company CEOs won't say that because they've got to, to talk to these people day in, day out. They know who the boss is. We think they're the boss but they know the big investors are the bosses. And uh, if city opinion turns against you quick enough, then, then you're going to be out. Regarding this question of, of, of the way in which um, modern elites are self-destructive to the institutions that they belong to, what are some sort of concrete examples that you would point to in the political sphere? I guess just looking at the Conservative Party now. I, I think if you compare... The modern parties or the, the centrist parties as we think of them now, New Labour and Cameron's Conservatives, there were strong parallels and that both of them were much more effective at winning power. They were election machines and media managers. And they were, in a way, they knew the cost was membership and the membership dropped under both of them. The party membership has been dropping for all the main parties for some years, but really they, they could decide that that was not something they weren't going to worry about that much. Political leaders have been mentioning it for some years. It's been a thing in politics for 20 or 30 years, the the realisation that ordinary people were not signed up members to parties. It was a fraction of what it was several decades ago. But the self-interest said that if you do this, which often meant not spending time talking to constituents, not, not spending time debating, having a democratic structure in your party, and you put those energies into to, to hobnobbing with, with media owners, uh, big funders, policy wonks, those kinds of people, um, strategists, advertisers, um, that was going to win you an election. And those were the things that won you an election. So they, they were sort of at the back of their mind, they must have been aware that they were putting off large amounts of the public. And they were aware that that trust in politicians has been dropping every decade. But it was a cost worth paying because they won the election. And if you won the election, you were in power and you could do supposedly what you wanted to do. So that, I mean, that calculation, I think, has been there. Not that they'll publicly talk about it, but that is what happened to New Labour and the Conservatives. And the same with the Republicans and the Democrats, really, and the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats. That calculation was there, or, or rather, the calculation was that it didn't matter. But of course, it builds up long-term problems because that alienates the population. And at some point, they distrust all of you. And 
they get a chance, a populist leader who, who says, who's anti-elite comes along and yeah, why not? An anti-globalization vote comes up, comes along. Yeah, why not? Because no one else seems to be listening to them. I suppose there might be sort of two ways of, of, of thinking about the question of, of self-destructiveness that you're pointing to, and specifically in the political sphere. One way I, I find myself thinking about it is less that the, the political practice of these individuals is inherently self-destructive, but that it's, it's destructive in the here and now, that these practices as you said, they were building up long-term problems, but they were perfectly appropriate and worked in the, you know, in the 1990s or the, or the 1980s. But that perhaps we're in a situation at the moment, and clearly we're in quite an early phase of the, the post-financial crash era, where for this brief period of time, these political elites are effectively self-destructive in, in, in their behaviour, but that we might see a gradual change over the next few years where these elites are either able to adapt or they are replaced by other people rather as happened in the Thatcher period where you have kind of the more sort of patrician elites associated with the Conservative Party um, who were sort of pushed out in favour in favor of people from, from slightly less kind of um, aristocratic backgrounds and that it wasn't necessarily so much that those older conservative elites were self-destructive, but that their political practice was no longer um, appropriate to the to the new era. Are we seeing sort of another stage in what's basically a cyclical process where certain ways of managing capitalism are viable for a certain period of time, and then they cease to be viable? And it's at that moment where these elites appear to be and perhaps are behaving in self-destructive ways, but that this would be a temporary phenomenon and that they will be effectively replaced in some sense by other elites who will be able to keep the show on the road. I'm not sure. Uh, uh, This is often argued. And if you look through history, yeah, we have cycles of breakdown and re-emergence. And that happened in the 1970s. You could sort of say it happened in the 1990s, happened in the 1930s, 1945. Yeah, there's a real breakdown, recovery, new programs, new elites. And um, and that's that's one of the sort of histories of the establishment. It just reinvents itself. Elites reinvent themselves. New people, new ideas. And yeah, you could say that. And I think that I think there's there's an argument to be said that the sort of professional electoral centrist techno- technocratic party that has come to dominate in recent decades is not working. It's not working sort of ideologically, philosophically, practically, organizationally. And we're being shown something else by these more peripheral, new, erratic, populist, fast moving sort of social movement party hybrid type things who use digital media instead of mainstream media. Those don't seem a stable thing either at the moment, uh, but maybe they're going to point towards something else. You could argue if if perhaps elites see the, the, the error of their ways, as they've been forced to do again in the past, capitalism has had to reevaluate itself. The sort of Gramscian argument that in order to survive, it eventually has to step back every now and then, and it has to placate uh, the masses in order to persuade them that it should still be there. With that argument, yeah, you could say it, it's going to happen. You could say we've, 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 as in the 1930s, hit by the financial crash, uh, haven't escaped it yet, haven't escaped the breakdown of the sort of the new of the international order, all those things, and maybe we will stabilize in time, hopefully without a war, a major war, or, or something else. 
that is one way of looking at it. I think I think another way of looking at it is to say, well, actually, maybe governance is, as it is, as it's conceived with the institutions and ways of doing things that we have now, that's becoming untenable, maybe because communication is far too fast moving now. Technological change is too fast moving. We're too fractured, fragmented, global financial flows and economic flows. Um, all these things make it that much harder for, for elites to to manage in whatever capacity, whatever whatever democratic structure they're working in. You could make that argument too. Um, in, in a way, I'm sort of making that argument in the book. I'd like it to be wrong, and um, maybe I am wrong. Maybe we, we will discover something new. Um, but I do think the old way the establishment reinvented itself and held on isn't working anymore. As I said, powerful elite people are still there earning more money than they ever did before. But what are they destroying in the process? And would it be tenable? I, I don't think so. So yes, I'm not, I don't have any, any answers and I could be completely wrong and I hope I am wrong. Hopefully it is just a, a downward cycle. And that isn't to say that I want a new cycle with, with elites that can hold it together because that's for, for the betterment of, of the, the country and the world. I don't want to go back to some sort of paternal, coherent elite in charge uh, with, the, with the inequality attached to that. You would hope it'd be some, something more social democratic uh, in various ways, a more equal economy, an equalizing economy that, that might stabilize, that might hold things together, uh, a real tackling of environmental issues, all those sorts of things, uh, which seem to be a sensible way forward. But, but as yet, it's very hard to see how it's coming through. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.